I was thinking about how to start this sermon during the week and uh, spent most of the time frantically looking for a kind of illustration that I was sure I had read somewhere but couldn't quite um, actually find where it was. So I'm relying on my memory um, 100% and I hope that the details of it are accurate and, uh, and uh, that um, that'll be okay. I once heard a story about a, a panel a discussion on television that featured a Church of England bishop and Elizabeth Taylor. Apparently, at one point, they got into some discussion about whether Jesus was the Son of God. And as the bishop was talking, Elizabeth Taylor interjected with the comment that maybe Jesus was the Son of God for him, but he wasn't for her. And in reply, the bishop said that Jesus either was the Son of God or he wasn't. But he couldn't be both simultaneously. There was no middle ground. They couldn't both be right, could they? And I think that brief interchange illustrates really well the difference between worldly wisdom, the uh, wisdom of the world in which we live right now, and godly wisdom, or God's wisdom. On the one hand, there is worldly wisdom, the Elizabeth Taylor School of Theology, where everyone just goes through life making up their own truth as they go along. Belief tends to be a matter of preference rather than conviction. And the cardinal sin is to say that anyone else's beliefs are wrong. Rather, everyone has to be right. Everyone's beliefs equally true. Each person, she would argue, has their own truth. And therefore, one person can quite easily believe that God is, that Jesus is God's son. Someone else can believe that he is not. And they can both be equally true and equally right. That's the uh, wisdom of the world that, that we currently live in. Then on the other hand, the antithesis for that is God's wisdom. There, truth is absolute. It is possible to say that one thing is right and that something else is not. Truth is revealed. God has made his truth known through his word and through his son and therefore our job as human beings is to find out God's truth and then live by it. From that perspective, it is absurd to argue that all beliefs are equally true. Instead, there is one truth, the truth that is revealed in Christ Jesus, and you either believe it or you don't. That is a choice that everyone has, but all beliefs are not equally true. I'm sure that if any of you have tried talking about Christianity with anyone at all within about the last ten years, then you will know just the kind of conversations and just the kind of tensions and just the kind of arguments that I'm talking about there. Every single time it comes back to a matter of worldview, the wisdom of this world versus God's wisdom. Two completely different ways of viewing the world that hinge on whether you accept Christ as the centre of everything or whether you don't. And these are crucial issues as we approach these particular verses in 1 Corinthians. Here, Paul's concern is that the Corinthian Christians have got far too enamoured with worldly wisdom and have forgotten about Jesus and the cross and God's wisdom. And so he writes to them to try and redress the balance 
and teach them about God's wisdom. And his warning, of course, is a relevant one for us too. Because like the Corinthians, we are always in danger of sliding back, of slipping back into worldly ways of thinking. There is a a danger that we too can start to adopt the mindset of the world in which we live, whether in the area of truth, where we think of Jesus as just one option among lots, or for instance in the area of sexual ethics, where we are constantly being forced to compromise. And that too, as we will see, was a huge problem for these guys in Corinth. And so the question for us that these verses force us to confront and ask is this. Whether we're going to compromise and slide back into worldly ways of thinking, or whether we're going to have a firm grasp of God's wisdom and hold on to it with confidence. Are we going to accept worldly ways of thinking or God's way of thinking, God's wisdom? I have to say, too, by way of introduction, that I think this passage looks a lot more complicated than it actually is. The main reason for that, I think, is because Paul was evidently using a lot of words that the Corinthians were using, and he's trying to kind of fill them with spiritual content, and then use the exact same, same, same words back at them. I think once we've got our head around some of the kind of vocabulary here, and hopefully once I've simplified things a wee bit, I think you will find that this passage in front of us is really actually quite clear and quite easy to understand in spite of what it uh, looks like when you first glance through it. So then, we're going to have three points all about God's wisdom that will help us to stand against worldly wisdom in our lives. So first of all then, from verse 6 down to verse 9, God's wisdom is hidden from the world. And Paul starts off by telling us that God's wisdom is hidden from the rulers of this world and the way that he does this is by contrasting for us the two different kinds of wisdom. God's wisdom and worldly wisdom. So let's look at worldly wisdom first of all. Worldly wisdom is the wisdom of this present age. It is the wisdom of the rulers of this world. By that he probably means the wise men, the scholars, the philosophers, the notable people that Paul has already talked about back in uh, chapter 1, verse 20. It says, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this present age? And Paul says that none of them have understood God's wisdom. And this is shown by their attitude to Jesus. He says that if they had have understood God's wisdom, then they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. They would have realized who Jesus was. You see, whether you are wise or foolish is not borne out by how many degrees you have or by how clever you are, but by your attitude to Jesus Christ. It is the wise men and politicians and scholars of the day who are responsible for crucifying Jesus. The cross was the most perfect demonstration of God's wisdom, yet it was hidden. It was under wraps from the rulers of this world. And then the end result of worldly wisdom is that it is coming to nothing. Those who do not understand the cross are on their way out. They belong to the old order of things, the old school. They belong to this world, which is passing away. 
So then let's contrast all this with God's wisdom. And Paul says the message that he speaks is God's wisdom. He says that he speaks it among the mature, meaning that he speaks it amongst fellow Christians, contrasting with the rulers of this world who haven't understood God's wisdom. Then he says it's a secret wisdom that has been hidden. What he means by that is that God's plan of salvation was hidden for a long time and known only to God, but it's come to light recently through the death of the Lord Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. Again, God's wisdom is focused entirely on Jesus. And people are judged, either wise or foolish, not by how clever they are, but on how they respond to him. And then the end result of God's wisdom is glory. Whereas worldly wisdom is part of the old order of things that is passing away, God's wisdom is part of the new order and results in glory in heaven for all who believe. And then in verse 9, it's in many ways a summary verse of what Paul has been saying so far. Here, Paul says that the natural human mind, the mind that is living according to worldly wisdom, just cannot grasp the greatness and depth of God's plan. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived. The rulers of this world, the received wisdom that people live their lives by, cannot even begin to conceive of what God has accomplished in Christ for those who love him. Often, I think, in contemporary Christian ways of talking about things, we interpret this verse wrongly. Because we talk about this verse as if it was talking about the future of how we cannot conceive of what heaven is going to be like. Actually, in context, it's quite clear that that's not really what it's talking about at all, at least not mainly. Instead, it is talking about the absolute inability of the world to understand what God has already done in the past for his people on the cross. I think there is a great illustration of this great kind of gap between Christian wisdom and worldly wisdom on television last week, this great lack of comprehension. I'm not sure whether you saw it, but uh, I was uh, watching as Jeremy Paxman interviewed Tony Blair, and he asked him whether or not he prayed together with George W. Bush. Now, it was quite obvious that Jeremy Paxman thought that there was nothing more laughable and more pointless than two people praying together. And his question was rather cruelly engineered to cause maximum humiliation to Tony Blair and maximum insult to George Bush. And that's precisely the kind of yawning chasm that Paul says exists between people who are living according to the wisdom of the world and those who are living according to God's wisdom. To the person steeped in worldly wisdom, the whole idea of prayer is completely ridiculous. Who ever heard of such a thing? To someone who has come to understand Christ and the cross, it is the most logical and most rational and most normal response that is possible. I think acknowledging that this gap exists can be actually very helpful for us. If you think sometimes people who are just starting to think about God and the Christian faith get terrified by the huge mental shift that it takes for them to suddenly have God in their lives. Here they are, perhaps, having lived for years without thinking about God, 
And then all of a sudden, he's on the scene in a huge way. And it's easy to feel freaked out or to wonder what is going on. I think, I think Paul would say that some of those feelings are entirely natural because you're making a transition between two things that are polar opposites. You are moving your life from the wisdom of the world to the wisdom of God. And that is going to mean a huge seismic shift for you. For example, it's going to take a radical shift to see prayer as important if you've lived for 10, 20, or maybe even 40 years without God, depending entirely on yourself. The wisdom of God is entirely alien to the wisdom of the world, and that means that it is always going to involve a major change in our way of thinking whenever we move between the two. I think one other example might be our attitude to the future. The wisdom of this world tells us entirely to live for the moment, for the material world, for what we can get, how much money, how much sex, in the here and now. But God's wisdom is future-orientated. It teaches us that this world is passing away, and that instead we have the certain hope of glory in the future. Again, nothing could be more foolish to the world than living for, for heaven. Who ever heard of such a thing? But yet, that is what God's wisdom is all about. And taking that on board is going to involve a major shift, a major change in how we think. So then, that's uh, number one. God's wisdom is hidden from the world. And we see that in verses 6 to 9. Then we move on. God's wisdom is revealed by his spirit. And that's in verse 10 to verse 12, the next uh, main section there. If you look at verse 10 and the first half of it there, Paul says that the way that we receive God's wisdom is that it is revealed by the Spirit. As uh, he says, God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. What he's saying is that the job of the Holy Spirit is to reveal God's plan of salvation to us and illuminate our minds so that we can understand it. And the way that Paul argues this is by use of an analogy between human beings and God. His premise is that only a person himself knows what he's thinking. And that their thoughts are entirely private unless they themselves choose to reveal them. So he says, for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? Only you know what you're thinking. He says it's exactly the same with God. Only God's spirit knows what God is thinking, and therefore we can't know anything about God at all unless he chooses to reveal himself to us, and the way he has done that is by his spirit. I think one way of thinking about this is thinking about a, a pin number. When you set up a, a bank account, you get a, a pin number that is, it is, that is unique to you and that only you know. No one else can guess what your PIN number is. The only way that they can know is if you choose to reveal it to them by either telling them or by being foolish enough to write it down. And that's the kind of analogy that Paul is drawing. He's saying that in the same way that only you can know your own thoughts and you choose to reveal them, so only the Holy Spirit knows God's thoughts and can reveal them to us. So in, in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And the way that this fits into Paul's argument here is that it is the Holy Spirit who reveals God's wisdom to us. 
if the Holy Spirit knows all about God, then he is fully qualified to reveal God's wisdom to us and teach us about the plan of salvation, Jesus, and the cross. So when someone is in the process of becoming a Christian, it is the Holy Spirit who is working in their life to stir them up and help them to understand the message about Jesus. It is he who is helping them to grasp the wisdom of God as opposed to the wisdom of the world and make the all-important move between the two. And this is exactly what we find when we come to Jesus teaching about the Holy Spirit in the Gospels. This, for instance, is what Jesus says in John chapter 16 and verses 8 to 14. When he comes, that is when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. What Jesus is saying is that the job of the Holy Spirit is to take his message into the world. Jesus is now in heaven but his spirit is active in the world and his role is to convince people that they need Jesus by convicting them of the reality of sin and judgment and to illumine their minds so they can understand how to be saved. Now the main way that he does that is obviously through the, the Bible. The Holy Spirit inspired people to write the Bible so that we have an accurate record of what Jesus did and taught and can still read it today. That is why, when, if you're interested in finding out more about Jesus, then the first thing that you need to do is to start reading God's Word, the Bible inspired by the Holy Spirit. However, the Holy Spirit didn't just inspire the Bible and then leave it there. He is still working in the world today, illuminating people's minds so that they can understand what they read and what they hear from it when it is preached. If you have a moment when suddenly everything kind of clicks into place for you to do with the Christian faith, then that isn't because the preacher is an eloquent speaker or because you've had too much cheese for lunch. That is the Holy Spirit illumining you and revealing God to you doing just what he always does, his job, which is to reveal Jesus to folk who desperately need rescuing from their sins. And all of this must have been absolutely revolutionary in Corinth, where they thought the main focus of the Spirit's work was on gifts and spiritual experiences. The Apostle Paul says that having the Holy Spirit is about something much more fundamental than, than all that. It is about understanding Jesus. If you have the Spirit, you have the wisdom of God, because the Spirit knows what is on God's mind. If you don't have the Spirit, then you don't have the wisdom of God, because you don't know God's plan of salvation, because it's the Spirit that gives it, that illumines it. You see, the Corinthians probably thought that they knew the deep secrets of God, mentioned there in verse 10. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things, of God, the Corinthians probably thought that these deep secrets were some amazing spiritual experience or some really profound truth. 
But what Paul says is that the deep secrets of God that the Holy Spirit searches out are actually truths about Jesus and the cross. The sign of having the Spirit is not some kind of gift or something flashy or something really showy, but it's simply that someone has come to understand the truth about Jesus. Jesus is God's wisdom and he is revealed by God's Spirit through God's Word. Jesus is God's wisdom and he is revealed by God's Spirit through God's Word. So then that's number two, God's wisdom revealed um, and that's uh, verse 10 to verse 12. Then we move on to our final point, number three, which is God's wisdom is lived out by his people. God's wisdom is lived out by his people. And that's in the final section, verse 13, down to verse 16. And the results of the work of God's Spirit in our lives, Paul says, will be a radically new mode of existence. Once again, the Apostle Paul brings this out with a very clever contrast. As he contrasts the non-Christian the person without the Spirit in their life, with the Christian who has the Spirit and therefore understands God's wisdom. So then, first of all, let's look at the person without the Spirit from verse 14. Just to refresh our memories on what it says, verse 14, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The um, word that Paul uses here to describe the person without the spirit is really a word that just means the normal, physical, natural, material, human mode of existence. It's really a kind of classic New Testament description of the non-Christian person. And then what he says about them is that the person without the spirit does not accept the things of God. The idea here is not that they can't understand them, but that they choose not to understand them. Left to our own devices, we always choose to go our own way, not God's. Then he says that the things of God are foolishness to the natural person. But it is to say that the non-Christian has everything upside down and topsy-turvy. The ways of God are foolishness to someone who has not accepted Jesus, God's wisdom. So, for instance, if you've ever tried talking to a non-Christian about Christian sexual ethics, you will know that this is true. Just try telling someone who doesn't accept God's wisdom that sex is best saved for marriage or that practicing homosexuality is wrong and they will think that you are being utterly crazy and totally irrational. You see, the ways of God are foolishness to them, to worldviews. The reason for this, Paul argues, is that they are totally unable to discern spiritual truth because they don't have the Holy Spirit. It bears out what Paul says elsewhere, where he says that in our natural state, we are dead to the things of God. We are like spiritual corpses until he comes along and wakes us up through his Spirit and breathes spiritual life into us. That's the person without the Spirit. Again, contrast this with the person who does have the Spirit in verse 15. He says, The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. Whereas the person without the Spirit 
cannot discern anything spiritual. Paul says that the spiritual man judges or discerns what? All things. Everything. This means that the person with the Spirit is qualified to discern God's ways. If you like, they've been kind of spiritually enlightened and are therefore qualified to make pronouncements about God and, and, and His plans. The kinds of things that are totally alien to someone who hasn't got the Spirit. When it says that the spiritual man judges all things, I think it's referring just back of the page to the all things that it says the Spirit searches in the second half of verse 10, where it says the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. I think the idea is that the Spirit searches all things, i.e. God's wisdom, and then reveals them to those who have the Spirit. Therefore, those with the Spirit are qualified to make judgments about all things, that is, all things pertaining to God's plan, the cross, and salvation. So when it says that the spiritual man judges all things, what it's really just saying is that the spiritual man is qualified to speak about Jesus accurately because he has the Holy Spirit. In practice, this means that the mode of existence that the Christian enjoys is on an entirely different level to the non-Christian. A non-Christian only knows about worldly wisdom, physical existence, and cannot comprehend the Christian worldview. In contrast, a Christian actually knows all about the physical world and what it's like to be a non-Christian, and yet he also knows about God, Jesus, the cross, and God's wisdom, the new mode of life in the Spirit. So it's altogether more, altogether better. What Paul is saying is that for the person who has the Spirit, there is this whole new glorious uh, panoramas of life that are opened up that the non-Christian knows nothing about. To them, they look like foolishness. But to those on the inside, it really is the difference between seeing the world in colour and seeing it in black and white. You can think about someone who's only ever seen the world in black and white, laughing about the whole concept of colour. Who ever heard of anything so bizarre as colour? Things aren't in colour. There are only different shades of grey. See, they just can't conceive what it would actually be like to see the world in colour. And for Paul, that's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. A non-Christian is only seeing things in black and white, monochrome. For the Christian, the whole glorious spectrum of colour becomes available. They can discern all the colours now because they have the Spirit. And we're coming up to the climax here, but you see, one result of all this for Paul is that the Christian must not allow himself to be judged by the non-Christian. That's what it means when it says that he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. What Paul says is that the person without the Spirit is wholly unqualified to pass judgment on the person who does have the Spirit. The person who, who, who only sees things in black and white can't presume to judge the person who sees things in colour, can they? The reason why? They're completely un, un, unqualified. You wouldn't let someone who only had a black and white a TV I tell them that, that, that you're kind of colour telly wasn't very good with you. Paul idea is ridiculous. For Paul, you see, it's totally incongruous for the person who only has worldly wisdom to judge the person who knows God's wisdom. It's like someone who's seeing things in black and white actually passing a judgement on someone who sees things in colour. And yet so often we fall for this, don't we? We allow ourselves to fall under the scrutiny and a judgment of worldly wisdom. So, 
we stop declaring that Jesus is the only way of salvation because the wisdom of this world declares us to be intolerant and bigoted. We allow ourselves to be silenced in the area of sexual ethics because the received wisdom of this age is that we are irrelevant, old-fashioned and unloving. We are scared of telling people about Jesus because we have bought into the lie that religion is a private matter that shouldn't be discussed. We keep quiet about prayer and we don't focus too much on the future lest people think we are weird. How many areas have we given in to worldly wisdom on? We huddle in a corner because some Jeremy Paxman or Elizabeth Taylor or erudite academic has us on the run. People with black and white seeking to pass a judgment on those with colour. In all of these areas, Paul says, we, we are the ones who are seeing the world in colour. Why then be judged by those who see the world in black and white? It's just extraordinary. We have received the Spirit. We have the very mind of Christ. We see reality as it really is. We know God's hidden wisdom. Why then do we allow ourselves to be judged by those who only know the wisdom of this world with its natural, temporal, physical outlook? Why do we esteem them as our authorities and give them influence over our lives as Christians? Why do we do it? You can see how the whole thing comes to a climax, can't you? It's one important point. Now, Paul is not saying that we have nothing to learn from non-Christians. And he is especially not saying that we should treat them with any sense of superiority or arrogance or one-upmanship. But he is saying that we should be careful that we don't buy into worldly wisdom. After all, we are part of a different kingdom. We are part of a new mode of existence. We belong to the future. We are the people of the Spirit. We have God's wisdom. Astonishingly, it says we have the very mind of Christ. Therefore, we ought to be living that out in our lives. So, if you are a Christian, you see the world in colour. Don't let someone who only sees it in black and white tell you how to live or pass judgment on you. We are now in a position to see the relevance of this passage for the Corinthians. You see, they were Christians, they had received the Holy Spirit, and yet they were living according to worldly wisdom. They were esteeming the philosophers and scholars of the day. They were downplaying Christ and his cross. They were focusing on the wisdom of the age rather than God's wisdom. And so Paul writes to bring them back. He reminds them about God's wisdom. He tells them that it is hidden from the world, that it is revealed through the Spirit, and that if they have the Spirit, then they ought to live as God's people and be worldly no more. And God's message to us tonight is the same. We need to face up to God's wisdom, the reality of Jesus and the cross, especially if we haven't ever done so before. And once we've done that, we need to live as people of the Spirit. Renouncing worldly wisdom and not letting the world squeeze us and fashion us into its mould. So maybe some of us here are going to need to repent. We've been far too influenced by the wisdom of the world. Maybe we have allowed it to come in and to judge our lives through through some individual and to really uh, discourage us and knock us off track as a result. Maybe if we are honest, 
some of us have always been living according to the wisdom of this world. And we need to come tonight to accept Jesus Christ, the wisdom and power of God, as our Lord and our Saviour. And then, once we've done that, we need to live that out. That's going to mean a focus on the future, not the present. A life of purity, rather than sexual compromise. And a willingness to stick our necks out for Jesus, not just on television shows and panel discussions, but in everyday life, even if that is not always going to be the most popular thing to do. That's godly wisdom, not worldly wisdom. Let's pray together. Let's take a few minutes just to think about some of the things that maybe God's been saying to us through his word. Let's move just having a, have a few moments quiet. And then immediately after that, I'm going to ask Mark Gillespie and Joe Kaisley to come and lead us in some um, prayers of response. Let's have a few moments quiet, and then after that, um, Mark and Joe will lead us in prayer. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. Father God, we come now in prayer before you, come to you both corporately as a group of Christians here in Edinburgh, we also come as individuals. We want to give you thanks for what we have heard and learned this evening from your word. We thank you God that although you are holy, and a mighty God who cannot tolerate sin yet you are a completely approachable God we know that now God as we talk to you you hear what we are saying and what we are not saying and that we know you will listen and respond to this Lord sometimes it's really hard to understand that although you are such a mighty and holy God that you are also our loving Father whose desire it is that we will be in a close relationship with you. Tonight we want to come and especially thank you that even though we're a large group of Christians, we can come in freedom and know that we don't have fear of persecution or prosecution like many others of our brothers and sisters are suffering throughout the world at this time. Well, God, we're also so very grateful that we all have access to your word in a language that we can understand. And we've all probably got our own copies of the Bible, Lord, and we're free to read these and study these whenever we want to. 
And Lord, we just think of your awesomeness. And we're just so amazed, Lord, that you want to involve us in your plan of salvation for this world. Lord, we thank you for this great privilege that you've given to us to be part of your plan. We pray that we will take this great privilege along with the responsibilities and that we would be faithful servants for you. I pray, Lord, that we would faithfully reach out to other people around us who do not know you and who have not had contact with Christians at this time. And pray, Lord, that we would faithfully witness for you. Then, Lord, we want to come and thank you for revealing yourself to everyone here tonight. Lord, some of us are further on in our Christian lives than others are, but, Lord, we believe you are here, and we believe you do want to talk, speak with everyone here. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to be diligent in study of your word, in being available to the Holy Spirit, and being listening and willing to act where we need to. I pray, Lord, that you'd also help us learn from the testimony of other Christians who've influenced us. Again, Lord, we want to really thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and you do continue to do so. Again, Lord, thank you that it's just not once-in-a-lifetime experience. It's a daily experience where we do see you in all different aspects of life. Lord God, we want to especially thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, We thank you for sending him to the cross to die for us so that we may be put right with you and have the assurance of eternal life. Sometimes, Lord God, words are inadequate to express how grateful we are for what you've done for us. But Lord, tonight we'd like to come before you and thank you in the best way we can for what you've done for us on the cross. we also like to thank you, Lord, that you do continue to reveal yourself by the Holy Spirit. I thank you, Lord, that despite the fact that we can often be spiritually blind, deaf and stubborn, that you do not give up on us, but you continue to reveal yourself to us through your word, through the Holy Spirit, and through more mature Christians than ourselves. Lord God, I really want to praise you for this, and pray that we may be receptive to to what you are saying to us this evening. Please help us not to harden our hearts, or not to forget what you've been teaching us when we walk out of the doors tonight. Pray, Lord, that you'll help us never to take for granted our salvation, but to always come in praise and gratitude for who you are and for what you've done for us. Help us, Lord, to remember that you are a holy and mighty God, but at the same time you're a very loving God who desires for all people everywhere to come to a saving knowledge of you and your Son, Jesus Christ. Then, Lord, we come to you in praise and worship, amazed and eternally grateful that you desire to communicate clearly with us so that we may know you and love you more and become more like Christ each day. Amen. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we come before you now and give thanks that you have revealed yourself and your secret and hidden wisdom to us through your Son Jesus Christ and through your Holy Spirit. And so it is our prayer that day by day we would more and more have the mind of Christ instill in us 
the desire to know you more deeply and the will to strive forward in our knowledge of and relationship with you. Help us to spend time with you, to study your word, and through the Holy Spirit, enlighten us so that we no longer conform to the pattern of this world, but are transformed by the renewing of our minds, and that this be evident in our daily lives. Guard us against complacency, as so often we rely on our own insight and understanding, and so often we are influenced by the perceived wisdom of the world around us, whether it be through the media, or in the workplace, or university. Help us to recognize the wisdom of the world and put it aside. Soften our hearts, Lord, so that you may shape our attitudes and our thoughts. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which enables us to understand and come to know all that you have given to us in Christ Jesus. Thank you that this gift is open to everyone and that you save those who believe in you and your Son and not through any merit or intellect that we have. Perhaps some of us have heard your word tonight for the first time, or perhaps have heard it many times before, but are struggling to accept it. If so, help us to realize that we cannot rely on our own wisdom, merit, or ability. Help us to understand your word. Speak to us through it, so that we may realize where we have gone wrong and turn away from what the world has to offer and look to Christ as our Lord and Saviour. We also give thanks that you are faithful and ageless and that your wisdom is not a wisdom of this age. And so we would pray for the leaders of the world tonight. We pray that at this time they would not depend on the wisdom of this age but that they would look to you for their guidance. So Lord, hear our prayers. For in Jesus' name we ask them. Amen. <laughs>